one of the universal traits of human nature, which is unfortunate and a battle, certainly is the unwillingness to listen to warnings, to keep on our way, and to find it difficult to change. The Associated Press ran a story some time ago of a man who simply refused to wear a seatbelt, even though he'd been ticketed and fined 32 times in five years. Even though it cost him a minor fortune, he insisted that within his own car, he was his own authority, and he could do what he wanted. Finally, he tired of paying the fines, and instead of obeying the law, he made a fake seatbelt that hung over his shoulder to make it appear like he was wearing one. He tied one end of the strap to his seatbelt just behind his head, by the door, and he'd sling the other bottom part over his waist to complete the deception. And you're thinking, well, why not just go ahead and spend about the same amount of time just put your seatbelt on? Never mind that. His trick worked, and he wasn't pulled over. But then he had a head-on collision, and one that he most likely would have survived, but it threw him into the steering wheel, the AP News recorded, and he was killed. The resistance to heed a warning is actually more commonplace than we'd like to admit. In fact, I came across one recent medical survey pointing out that around 600,000 people in America have had open heart surgery. And that isn't all Americans. They come from all over the world to have their surgeries here, right? Uh, But uh, 600,000 people a year, a year, these patients are told that their bypass surgery is only a temporary fix. And uh, they've survived. They've been given another chance. And the doctors, of course, tell them you've got to change some things. The report said doctors have delivered the message to millions of Americans. You've been brought back from the brink of death. You'd better change. Next time it might not work. According to this medical survey, get this statistic, those they tracked, 90% of open heart surgery survivors change nothing. Why would that be? Well, probably for the same reason none of us want to change anything. Uh, Probably for the same reason we don't even like to pull over and ask for directions. I do. I just want you to know I'm pretty quick to do that. (laughs) I mean, one of the most remarkable, unfortunate things about human nature is we don't want to admit we are failing in some area. Or that we've made a mistake. That we've done something wrong. That it really was our fault. One of the most remarkable admissions of failure in the entire record of human history comes from the pen of one of the most powerful men who ruled one of the most powerful kingdoms on planet earth. His changed heart is going to bear witness to a remarkable conversion. But it isn't until after he has effectively had a head-on collision with the discipline, the unmovable truth of God's word. He survives, though, to tell his story. It's found in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is one of the most unique chapters in the Old Testament because it is an official autobiographical document written by someone other than the author of the book. It's just tucked in by Daniel in his journal. It's an open letter 
by Nebuchadnezzar sent to his kingdom citizens. Now, in in a rather typical royal fashion of the day, the letter opens here in chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, basically what's happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar is about to deliver his personal testimony. If you've been through our greenhouse class, you know you've written out your personal testimony. We've had now about 2,000 do that. If you've done that on your own, perhaps you've shared it with somebody. Nebuchadnezzar is writing his testimony, and he's delivering it to the kingdom. Notice verse 3. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, after this, most people are going to kind of yawn and say, oh, we got another you know, letter from the, the king. He's going to talk about how great he is and how connected he is with the gods. What he does instead, however, that gets everybody's attention is that he begins to give a detailed account of a nightmare that he's been having. He had it seven years earlier, and he's going to give the details. Look at verse, the next verse, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now stop for just a moment. In the margin of your Bibles, I suggested it back at chapter 3. If you haven't done it, I would recommend that you write into the margin of your Bibles the words 15 to 20 years later. 15 to 20 years later. In other words, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through that fiery trial 15 to 20 years after they had arrived in chapter 1. Now, you might want to write next to the opening lines here of this letter in chapter 4 the words 20 to 25 years later. And that's because chapter 4 will take place some 20 years after the events of chapter 3. And by the way, the diary of Daniel covers 75 years of Daniel's life. So right now in chapter 4, he is in his early 50s. And the reason I went through that whole thing here, that exercise, is because I want you to understand that Daniel's testimony has sort of weaved its way in and around that uh, kingdom and, and the heart of that king for some 35 years. Nebuchadnezzar has heard the gospel. He's about to hear it again. He's heard it from his prime minister. These are not surprising words that you'll read in a little bit. This individual in his kingdom who was abducted as a teenager rose to prominence and now for 30-some years has been leading with integrity. He's he's considered the wisest man in the kingdom. Now verse 4 just opens by telling us that Nebuchadnezzar is enjoying a time of peace and prosperity. He says, I was at rest and flourishing. That Aramaic word, flourishing, can be translated literally, I was growing green. That's what it means. I was growing green. Now, that doesn't mean he started planting trees and recycling aluminum cans. What it means is that everything was just working out wonderfully. It was a luxuriant, prosperous time under my rule. Now, it's during this time of luxury that he begins to have these recurring 
nightmares. And let me summarize just for the sake of time. We're going to actually make it through the entire chapter. And so he brings in all his conjurers. He brings in his diviners. He, he brings in all the other magi. And as usual, they don't have a clue. You wonder, why are they on the payroll? This dream is from God. That's part of the reason. True to form, Nebuchadnezzar brings in Daniel last. And we're not told why he's brought in last. Maybe it's because Nebuchadnezzar wants to give his own boys another chance. They keep flunking the dream test. Here's another one. Maybe it's because he has the suspicion that this dream isn't going to go his way. So finally, verse 8 says, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my, of my God. Now, now, let me stop again. In this open letter to the kingdom, he referred, did you notice, to Daniel's Hebrew name. He calls him Daniel. And that hints that something's going on in this man's heart. Something happened. And now because no one in the kingdom who reads the letter would know who Daniel is, it's been 35 years since that name's been bannered around. He adds, you notice, this is Belteshazzar, and everybody probably went, oh yeah, that guy, we know him. Now, let me pause a moment here again. Verse 9, there are a couple of more observations I want to make. Nebuchadnezzar makes the comment that Daniel has a spirit connected to the gods. He's reporting, by the way, what he said seven years earlier, at the beginning of this ordeal where he's still confused in his polytheism. That'll straighten out by the end of the chapter. But you notice here he calls Daniel in verse 9 the chief of magicians. Just for the sake of biography, as we set up the scene for what will happen later, you could actually translate this the master of the magi. And we'll deal with the magi in detail on Christmas Sunday, the Lord willing. But for now, here's the nightmare. Okay, let me, just, let me just read through it without any more interruptions from me, okay? Here we go. Look at verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. And I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic being, a watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree! Cut off its branches! Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Time for an interruption. Now, up to this point, you've noticed that everything is in reference to it. It. It's it's referring to a, a tree. And that's obviously pretty obvious. It, it says it's a tree. It's going to be cut down. In fact, all of the wise men knew this was a reference to something great, something mighty, a tree. 
It's possible that the Magi's and conjurers didn't want to give the meaning, at least the obvious part of it, that would have gone against job security. The king had a temper. Remember, there's a furnace and lions. The tree is used in the Old Testament. It's used all the way back in the days of Nebuchadnezzar to speak of a kingdom. It's a common metaphor. The bigger the tree, the more powerful the kingdom. And in this dream, you notice, as I read it, the roots reach to the ends of the earth. It's visible. This thing rules, as it were, the world. Underneath its branches, everyone finds shade and security and abundance. This is obviously a reference to the kingdom of Babylon. But that's not the nightmare part. That's actually a good dream. Nebuchadnezzar could wake up from that and go, wow, this is a good dream. I hope I have it again tomorrow night. No. The nightmare begins because of a change now in the pronouns. It moves from general to personal. Notice verse 15. Again, the latter part. And let him, there's the shift, be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods or seasons, literally seven years, pass over him. This isn't about a tree anymore, is it? Keep reading. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones. In order that, why is this nightmare happening? That the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar would at that point be in a cold sweat. First of all, what do you mean? This is me, obviously. This is my kingdom. I don't need help. I don't have to pay guys to tell me this is what this means. But what do you mean here? The lowliest wears the crown. I'm not the lowliest. I am the greatest. And what do you mean the the most high has put me on my throne? I'm the son of a king. I was born into this. And the kingdom stretches now because of my doing. Not lowly. You should see my glory. No, Nebuchadnezzar's troubling nightmare informs him that the most high God crowns whomever he wishes. And sometimes he places rulers all the way from the top down to civil leaders in place who are the least deserving, not the most deserving. That's been happening since Nimrod built his first city. Just read the world reports, by the way. It's going on in this day today. I don't get a newspaper. Maybe you do. They throw one in my driveway every three or four days to tempt me. But I get enough just reading the headlines at Harris Teeter's. I'm waiting for Starbucks to fix that coffee. And you can see the scandal. Sometimes I'll actually open it up. And then I do have a, an iPhone and I do get the AP News. and Just the headlines. Like the recent scandal in China in the life of one of their top administrators, somebody well-trusted. He was viewed as a benevolent man only to discover now that over the years he's been stealing and stashing millions of dollars for himself and his family. He's just on the page smiling. 
Read of African and South American dictators who lead their impoverished people into even greater poverty while they live like kings. Listen, God, according to this announcement, is using even the lowliest of men to lead those nations, those kingdoms, toward ultimately his end and his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, you're a great tree. Not because you deserved it, but because I made you that way. And here's a newsflash. You're about to get chopped down. And he would tremble in his bed at the thought of it. Really ironic to me in my study to discover, and I'll give you just a little bit of it, that this metaphor was well known. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered inscriptions by Nebuchadnezzar where he actually used the language of a tree referring to his own kingdom. He talked about the branches of his kingdom giving shelter. I mean, this is right out of his own journal. He knew. He knew. That's why he was so troubled. Reynolds Showers, in his wonderful little commentary, I'm trying to get him here for the summer series. He works for Friends of Israel, great expositor. He points out in his commentary on Daniel recent findings that Nebuchadnezzar had an obsession with trees because of their strength and their, and their might. He's kind of obsessed with them. In fact, he would take tours through Lebanon, the great cedars there. And, 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 and on one occasion, in one of his tours, uh, they've discovered that Nebuchadnezzar actually chopped down one of those mighty cedars by himself. And he was so proud of himself that he had a picture of himself cutting that tree down, carved in stone. Nebuchadnezzar, let me give you, God says, another picture. Carve this one in stone. You have been felled by the hand of God. Now, he already had plenty of understanding. That's probably why he brought in Daniel last. And the others feigned. We don't know what it means. And it was troubling to Daniel. In fact, I want you to see this, and I want to stop long enough to get it. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while. He heard it. His thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. In other words, come out with it. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, which is tantamount to your highness, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. What? That's not what Daniel should be saying here. I mean, this is your chance. He ought to be saying something like, Are you ever in for it? I mean, you're about to be chopped down. Think about it. Daniel is there because he's been abducted. He probably saw his parents killed. He could say to this king, look, your day's up. You destroyed our temple. You destroyed the city of Jerusalem. You put my king's eyes out only after you killed all his children. You threw my only three friends in the furnace to roast them Look, i got to tell you something. Am I ever glad to see God finally getting around to chopping you down? That's what it means, king. That's what I would have done. I'll pray for you. This is amazing humility. 
This is amazing compassion for the lost. Pagan kings act like pagan kings. Sinners act like sinners. We so often forget that the issue is their soul. Daniel didn't pile on the table you know, all the things that could have been eating away to making him bitter and, and resentful or, or frightened. You don't hear Daniel say, I think God's letting you off rather lightly. Seven years for you. I've had 35 years here. No. He says, King, this is such bad news. I really wish it was happening to your enemies. Which implies Daniel isn't one of them. How could Daniel feel this way? How could he talk this way? He can talk this way because he's believed the interpretation of this nightmare long before Nebuchadnezzar had it. That that heaven rules. The most high rules. The heart of the king is in the hand of the most high. He's moving earth. He's moving the nations of the world ultimately toward his final purposes. And for us as believers, the best is yet to come. But now Daniel provides the interpretation. Let me summarize it for you. Basically, in a sentence, he says, King, there's trouble ahead. See, God has decided to change your mind. You go back to verse 16, and that word mind, you could render it hard. It speaks of the, the seat of the moral a reflection. It is the place where the will decides. It is, it is out of that which patterns of behavior emanate. So what he's basically saying is, King, God is going to touch your mind, and he's going to turn the dial, and he's going to take away the majority of your sanity until you understand his sovereignty. You're going to act and live like a brute animal. And, and by the way, that took a lot of courage, even to compassionately give him the story. You know, Eastern kings weren't in, in, in the practice of hearing bad news. In fact, we know from history that they didn't allow, many of them, bad news ever entered their, their palace grounds. And there are some monarchs who wouldn't allow anybody to say the word death in their presence. Only good news. Only that it's sunny and, and it's a great day. So what happens next is even going to require more courage. Look at verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. In other words, you're going to live outdoors. Seven years, seven seasons are going to pass until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. That is, your kingdom will be assured. Return to you after you recognize, get this. You ought to underline this in your text. You get this, king, that heaven rules. Heaven rules. Now that didn't take courage enough. What happens next is remarkable. Daniel now kind of goes off script. He's not even going to be talking about the dream. He's going to make an application, which begins with the word, therefore. I'm not finished, king. I've given you the news. Now let me apply it to your life personally. He's no longer prophesying. He's preaching. Look at verse 27. Therefore, 
O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. You believe this, O king? Here it is. Stop sinning. You're a sinner. And you need to stop. You need to repent. Stop doing iniquity. Show mercy to the poor. In other words, stop, stop treating your people as if they're chattel. Break away from your sins. The imagery of repentance. Acknowledge that heaven rules. And notice the end of verse 27. Maybe, perchance, God will withhold this nightmare from taking place. You don't know. All you need to know is you need to repent. And maybe God will hold it off. With that, Daniel walks out and leaves the king alone with his thoughts. God evidently gave Nebuchadnezzar a year to repent and to think it over. Now, verse 29 tells us that 12 months later, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Now, don't go too fast here. Try to get this picture in your mind. From a human perspective, Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to believe his own press releases. That's why I brought this picture along for the screen. So you can just kind of see. This is what he's seeing. He, he was probably the greatest builder of ancient times. In fact, already, or at this point, 49 different buildings with inscriptions on them point to their builder architect being none other than Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, most of the bricks being unearthed in Babylon, which is located in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, have stamped upon them the inscription, every brick with the inscription, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So you look at a building, and every brick is stamped, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Don't want you to forget that. With every building you see. So here he is on top of the roof of the palace. We're not sure which building. Maybe up there with the, with the hanging gardens. He's up there and verse 30, the king reflected. He's looking around and he says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. He's so humble. I just love the way he worded that. Twelve months to think it over and... No. I did this. See, part of the problem is he's, he's gotten his way his entire life. Nobody's ever stood up to him. He's always come in first. Nobody's challenged him. Uh, the life of an Oriental king. I, I had one gentleman come to me. He's been a missionary for 50 years, and he was just telling me the story of, of being in one country. I flew into the same little airport, and it, it gives the name of the king, the only sovereign, use himself as king, an impoverished country. But you go to talk to him, and you walk toward him on your knees. And this one missionary said that he was invited to preach at the 
25th anniversary of their ministry and preached about 25,000 people and they all were on the ground. The king was on his throne and he said, on what point uh, uh, refreshments were brought in and the person literally came into the room, dropped to his knees and, and, and crawled on his knees with the tray to the sovereign. And then when you left him, you backed up on your knees. That was Oriental custom. Still going on today. Nebuchadnezzar stood at the height of the greatest empire and his way was always the way it was. You know, I couldn't help but think, he must have been a terror growing up. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar at two? <laughs> or at four? In fact, as I was studying this text, I remembered reading the true story. I went back and looked it up. I had it in my files of a little boy who arrived with his mother at the dentist's office, a little five-year-old. He didn't want to be there. And uh, he kind of strutted in. The dentist said, thinking he owned the place. The dentist introduced himself. Could immediately tell this kid was used to calling the shots, and he wasn't happy with being there. So the dentist said, son... Go ahead and climb up in the chair. The little boy looked up at him and said, no. The dentist didn't quite know what to do. He said, well, Mom, why don't you stand over here, and, and, uh, and, and son, why don't you climb up on the, on the chair? The little boy said, no. In fact, if you make me, I'm going to take all my clothes off. <laughs> the dentist didn't even bat an eye. He just nonchalantly said, well, all right, go ahead and put your clothes on that table over there and then get up in the chair. The kid was stunned. But he wasn't bluffing, so he took off his shirt, put it on the table. The dentist said, all right, now get up in the chair. The boy said, I mean it. I'll take my clothes off. The dentist said, okay, put them over there with your shirt. And then get up in the chair. The little boy stripped down to his shorts. And the dentist said, now get up in the chair. And the boy completely wilted, climbed up on the chair, had his teeth cleaned while shivering there in his shorts. Finally, the dentist said, well, that'll be all. The kid quickly hopped down, went for his clothes, and the dentist said, oh, no, we're, we're keeping your clothes. If your mom wants them, she can come back later and get them. The little boy walked out through the waiting room, holding on to the hand of his mother, which he hadn't done for a long time, and they walked through all the way out to the car. A couple of days later, the mom walked back in. You'd think to sue the dentist. No, she came back in and said, and I quote, I can't thank you enough. He's threatened me with that in the grocery store and on the playground whenever he doesn't get his way. You're the first person to stand up to him, and he hasn't been the same since. <laughs> Frankly, Nebuchadnezzar is that little boy always has grown up. We've already seen his temper erupt. We've, we've seen him treat people horribly. Nobody's ever stood up to him. Nobody's ever called his bluff. He's just a big baby, all grown up. And now he thinks he's bigger than Daniel's God. Yeah, I heard what you said 12 months ago, but I'm up here on top of my palace and uh, with, with thumbs in his lapels, he effectively says, I don't even think the God of Daniel can take me on. Look at what I've done. Look at my glory, my kingdom. At that moment, wham, God speaks, verse 31. 
While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like eagle's feathers, grew long and his nails like bird's claws. From so high a pinnacle, now on all fours, like an animal. Now from the perspective of Scripture, we understand that God has touched his mind and removed a large measure of his sanity. From the human perspective, the technical terms for these are Boanthropy, if someone acts like an ox. Lycanthropy, if they act like a wolf, from Latin. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, in his wonderful little study guide on Daniel, uses the categorical term zoanthropy. That is, all the animals in the zoo. It's a technical term for a rare delusional disorder in which a person believes they are an animal. And they manifest that belief in a variety of animal-like behaviors, such as walking on all fours, eating grass, communicating only through the grunting of whatever animal they think they are. Can you imagine how far he's fallen? By the way, Warren Wearsby wrote in his commentary on this passage a, a, a practical application. I'll drop it in and then, and then move on. But he said this, Whenever men and women refuse to submit to God as, as their God, they are in grave danger of descending to live like animals. We might not eat like them, walk like them, but we can live like them, can't we? Well, God keeps his promise of discipline, and he also keeps his promise of deliverance. Notice verse 34. But at the end of the period, this seven-year period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Don't forget, this is an open and official letter to his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is effectively telling his entire empire that he is now a follower of of the God of Daniel who disciplined him severely. And he's effectively saying, it was my fault. It was my fault. My reason has returned to me. He's just admitted to everybody I was out of my mind. What was I thinking? But now my reason has returned to me and and I understand that God loves me and cares for me. He caught me in my sin. He heard me speak those words and he kept his word and he Wham! Disciplined me. And I'm grateful he did. So I want everyone in the empire to know I'm not embarrassed to tell you the truth. He's effectively saying the best thing that ever happened to him was when God caught him in his sin and cared enough to discipline him. every, Every parent in this room understands the value of catching your kids 
And no child understands the value of catching or being caught, right? As I was studying this, I thought about the many times as a kid that I was caught. I wish I had time to tell you some stories. I don't. It's past 12 already. (laughs) Would you like to hear one? That's what I was afraid of. (laughs) I I did. In fact, my my dad called me this morning at 7. He calls me every Sunday morning at 7 to see if I'm awake. I mean to pray with me uh, before the service. And I asked him about this because this had come back to my mind. And we figured out that when this happened, he was about 32 years of age. He and my mom raising four boys in their missionary family trying to feed us. I asked him some details and he clarified a couple of things. He, I, I remember he came home. They'd been away. They'd been to Tampa. And they came back and they had with them a stalk of bananas five feet high. Huge one stalk, he'd gone right down to Tampa, there at the docks, and right off the banana boat for a couple of bucks, got enough bananas to feed us for a, for a century. He brought that back. I can still remember him lugging it down into the basement. Under the stairwell where it was cool, he, he drove in a hook, and then he hoisted that stalk up there and underneath that stairwell and placed it on that hook and stepped back, closed a curtain we had there on the stairwell, and then he turned to the four of us. Ten, eight, uh, five, and two, and said, Boys, leave these bananas alone. <laughs> and what did I say? Yes, sir. And I was a lot more sincere than my other brothers. I can testify to that. Man alive. Can you imagine that? He left to go back downtown. As far as we were concerned, behind that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> we got to see it. We, we got to see it. I wanted to be the high priest and go behind the curtain. So I sacrificed my little brother and went in. No, I'm teasing. I, actually, I went outside with my brothers and we just began to play. But then my friend Ronnie, who lived a couple of doors down, came over to play. And man, I had it. I had the best news in the world. I mean, this is a great story. Or what? I said, you won't believe this, Ronnie. So we went down to the basement. I pulled that curtain open, and we just stood there and stared. And then we thought, one won't matter. I mean, there were millions of bananas on that stall. So I took one. He took one. And then we took another, and, and then we even started a race to see who could eat the bananas the fastest. And before you know it, we had 24, 25, 26 banana peelings at our feet and a stomach ache to boot. Now, what are we going to do? Repent? Not on your life. I saw over just to my right our piano, large piano. Have you heard this story? Or did you do this too? Okay. Weighed 3,000 pounds, but we pulled it away from the wall and we, we threw behind the piano those banana peelings. Pushed the piano back and knew that our secret was safe for years, at least. <laughs> However, that night, it was rather odd, my parents thought, that I wasn't interested in the banana pudding that my mom had made that afternoon. I was the only one that didn't want any of it, and they thought that was a little strange. And A week or two later, for some strange reason, my parents decided to change all the furniture around in the basement, and they moved that piano. And there were all those blackened, dry, shriveled-up banana peelings, and they 
put two and two together. I was the only boy that didn't want banana pudding that night. And they called me down in the basement to show me the evidence. And, and judgment fell. <laughs> I got caught for everything. I, I, I never got away with hardly anything. And you know what? I, I'm glad. I'm glad. In fact, my greater concern is now I might get away with things. Is that how you feel? I wonder if you have some banana peelings hidden away. Nobody knows. The tragedy isn't being caught. The tragedy is in not being caught. And you end up ruining, wasting your life. Here in this open letter, the king is admitting to having been caught. He admits to having failed, to sinning. I love this. Let me say just another word and then we'll move on. But can you imagine? This is a mass mailing. The king even admits to having been deranged out of his mind. And now he's honoring God. I mean, wouldn't it be great if some political leader in our world, somebody high up in the echelons of power, grabbed a microphone or said on national television... I just want all of you to know my reason has returned to me. I was out of my mind. But now my reason has returned and I am giving glory to the God of heaven. Wouldn't that be great? Nebuchadnezzar is now bragging on God. He basically brags on at least three attributes. First, he announces that God is unequaled in ruling his creation. He is unequaled in ruling his creation. That's verse 34. He is the most high God. He lives forever. His dominion is everlasting. Secondly, and again, remember this is a mass male. He, he brags that God is unaccountable in answering his creation. Not only is he unequaled in ruling his creation, he's unaccountable in answering his creation. Look at verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can war off his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? Nobody can say, what are you doing? You know, when I, when I take the gospel out on the street and I'm talking to people, this is one of the most infuriating things to people who don't believe in Christ. This one attribute. That, that God is sovereign and he owes mankind absolutely no explanation for what he does. See, the very thing the human race wants is to be unaccountable. And this is the very thing the human race dislikes the most about God. That he is unaccountable. Spurgeon said, well, and he said, we all just like to be little sovereigns. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to budge. This is my life. One author wrote of a ship's captain peering into the darkness of the night, caught the faint glow of a light in the distance. He immediately told his signalman, send a message, quote, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly, a return message flashed back, alter your course 10 degrees north. This really angered the captain. 
His command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. This is the captain. The message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. This is a second-class seaman. (laughs) Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear this was going to produce. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. The reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Nothing more needs to be said. You confront an immovable source of truth. You can maintain your direction and crash or submit to the Word of God. He says here God is unequaled in ruling His creation, He is unaccountable in answering His creation. Thirdly, he is unhindered in managing his creation. Verse 36, And at that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me. That is, God gave it back to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. That word can literally refer to just my throne. God effectively put me back on my throne. Now I'm on my throne because I understand God put me there. That's what he's saying. In fact, notice, in surpassing greatness was added to me. That's not Nebuchadnezzar-type language. He isn't saying it was deserved by me. It was earned by me. Now he's saying it was added. Someone outside of me added it to me. And who is that, Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 37, the formal letter concludes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his way is just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's a long way of saying in a formal way, Now I know heaven rules. And by the way, in this entire closing paragraph, Nebuchadnezzar never once refers to himself as king. That's all he'd live for. He stamped it in every brick. But in this last paragraph, he attributes the title king to God. I would agree with those commentators and scholars that we will one day see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. As proud as his life had been, as horrific as these seven years were, they brought about because of the grace of God and the gospel of Daniel who called him to repentance, an alteration in the eternal destination of Nebuchadnezzar's life. And as he wraps the letter up, you discover that he has become the emperor ambassador for the king of heaven. And his message is fairly simple. And with that I conclude. His message is simply heaven rules period. Would you bow your heads for just a a moment? We're here in a service designed, as the early church did, for the purpose of glorifying God and being edified in the Word through music and fellowship and the sharing of gifts. Being edified doesn't mean that you leave feeling better It does mean that we leave committed to living better. 
Perhaps for some it's been a warning. For some a challenge to change. To admit failure, sin. Maybe it's to think, you know, boy, today, thank you, Spirit of God, I don't know what I was thinking, but I wasn't in my right mind. To think that I would do that, decide that, thank you for today. Maybe that's what you need to say to him. In whatever way you can do business with your Lord, if it's nothing more than saying, I'm so grateful that today we've been able to rehearse the truth that heaven rules, not my circumstances, not my country, not the kingdoms of the world. Ultimately, heaven rules. Do that. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.